This week on Writers Inc. Publishing moves at a glacial pace, except when it doesn't. Um, right now, we seem to be at a point where oh, there's a lot of consolidation um, of media companies. Um, that's been a trend for a while now. And as you know, Big Five turns into Big Four, which will probably turn into Big Three, I think what's going to happen naturally is we're going to see a lot more smaller presses being able to kind of rise up in the ranks um, because when you consolidate the way publishing is now with the big publishing houses, they are going to ignore a lot of demographics <laughs> that have been traditionally ignored. Right now, there's there's a big push for um, writers of color, for you know LGBTQ plus uh, writers too. Uh, but we all, if we for those of us who've been in publishing for a while, we know that's a trend um, and a uh, fad that publishing is following. Um, and I don't mean that in a negative way towards the writers. I mean that in a negative way towards the publishing industry, how um, they grab onto something, same as TV, same as film and all of that, uh, write it for as long as they can and then ditch it as soon as it's no longer profitable. J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and Indie Powerhouse's Jay Thorne and Zach Bohannon as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where do they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories, all have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the bestseller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's Inc. I'm, uh, I'm back. I just want to. I just want to state that for the record, for everyone who likes to remind me how many episodes I've missed. I just want to say I'm here. I can't remember if you were here last week. Other than I was. Your uh, yeah. Well, I see because your name on here. I can. Uh, that's just the only. Otherwise, I would honestly forgot. Can we take bets on next week? <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. I'll take all, all your money if you want me to. <laughs> do you just have to? Do you just have to send it to him in crypto? That's all he cares about. Yeah, <laughs> just in ETH. Pay me in ETH. Yeah. I don't even know what the hell that is. I don't either. <laughs> it sounds real. Get off my lawn. <laughs> yeah, please go off my lawn. Anyway, publishing news. I, I feel like we, I was joking around saying it just feels like we just did this, and it literally feels like we just did this a week ago. Um, HarperCollins still on strike. Um, I just saw an email go around. I, I guess a bunch of agents have signed a petition saying they're not going to submit any books to HarperCollins until this is resolved. Um, I, I guess it's a good show of force, but at the same time, there's nobody to actually read those books at HarperCollins, so I'm not <laughs> quite sure what you know what would really happen if they if they sent one in. Um, I was all those Nanorimo books coming yeah, in, right? Yeah. Oh god, that, that that's coming. <laughs> They're magically going to start doing books again in January. Yep. Like. <laughs> So I, I mentioned I, I actually started reading physical magazines again, um, which has been kind of fun and refreshing. Like, I don't know if you guys are magazine fans or not, but like I, I used to get like five or 10 different ones and, you know, I've just kind of paged through them and stuff. And I just, I liked having them and I just, it, over the years, they've just kind of dropped off. So I ordered Wired Magazine again. I'm eating lunch and I'm flipping through it. And there's this article about advertising and bots. And like, I never thought about this before, but apparently a big number of the clicks that we see on things like Facebook ads are actually bots. They're not even real people. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I was just curious. Oh, you guys all knew this. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, I, I felt like I a schmuck. 
<laughs> like I'm, I'm reading, I'm like, oh crap, I'm no, throwing all this going, money at Facebook, and 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 you know, it's probably some CPU, some computer in some kid's basement at his grandma's house or something. You know, that's that's clicking away, and he's he's earning you know money off my ads right next to his his mining operation. I, I always thought that's why the click through rate was so low, is because so because so many of those clicks were just not fraudulent, but like bots or automated or something. It, it could, I'm sure that's a big part of it. Um, apparently like there's a huge percentage, like most, I'm, I'm sure Facebook could tell you exactly what percentage is. Um, you know, I'm saying that, but like Elon Musk is complaining about all the bots on Twitter and like he owns the company and he doesn't even know what the actual bot number is. Um, but I imagine they've got some kind of handle on it and then like, but it, sh- it feels like they should discount for that in some way. You know, they're charging us the same thing one way or the other. Um, I had another call yesterday with my Facebook rep and like, I am just completely losing faith in, in those people. Like, first of all, they change reps on me. Like it's pretty much every time I have a phone call about once a month, I've got a different rep, um, which tells me that the turnover there is horrible. Um, and when I talk to them, like, it's pretty obvious that they're reading from scripts, you know, like there's something, you know, basically prompting them, telling them exactly what to say to you. Um, and you know, they can't ask, answer some of the most basic questions, you know, things that you get from, you know, Facebook 101 advertising, like a lot of them don't seem to necessarily understand it. Um, and a lot of the advice they give is, is counterproductive. It doesn't necessarily work. So I don't know. I'm, I'm still trying all these other methods. Yeah. I, I remember um, I got an email from KDP that was actually the template. They hadn't filled it in and it was like, say either this or that and then apologize. I still have a copy of it. So yeah, I've kind of lost faith. But um, I remember when uh, there was big stuff going on about Twitter bots, there was like a survey going around and it would show you different accounts and you had to pick whether they were bots or not. And I failed it miserably. Like I cannot spot social media bots at all. Well, it's getting crazy. I mean, like there's actual news articles now that are written by bots, you know, so like that's, that's a thing. Um, yeah. So I don't, I don't know where it's going to go. It's just, I, I'm seeing a diminishing return, which I've been, you know, bitching about for, for the last year or so on Facebook. Um, you know, one of the things that my Facebook rep had told me to do was to set, um, I've got a whole list of authors that I basically target. Um, and then there was a, a detailed targeting option on there. So he told me to set the detailed targeting to on and told me to add psychological thrillers to that. Um, which I went ahead and did. And I, I just went back and looked at my numbers for the last month, like basically since I, I threw that switch and he basically, he doubled my cost, cut the number of clicks that I was getting in half. Um, you know, so like yesterday I switched it back and like, I'm back to the way I was before I did it. And I'm, I'm seeing the results that I did before, you know, so like this is coming from their, their, their people that are supposed to be training, you know, or telling you what to do. What, what's your, uh, AMS ads looking like these days? I was about to ask if you had, uh, decide to go with them and do that big thing where they run it for you. Cause I don't think we ever got an update on that. Yeah. So I'm all squared away and I'm definitely going to do it, but I'm going to do it with the next book that comes out. So it's going to probably be like around March of next year. Um, and that's a big spend. We, we talked about it. It's at roughly about 50 grand or so that's going to go out the, the door. Um, I I've got AMS ads running. Um, but you know, I get the opposite problem with them. You know, like I'll tell them I'll, I'll give you $200 a day for this ad and they'll spend like $3 and 17 cents. Um, and you know, there's, there's nothing you can really do about that either. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, honestly, like I've got commercials running on Hulu, like physical commercials, you know, people holding up my books and and talking about them. Those move physical copies. 
Um, they don't move eBooks. Those people tend to, whoever sees them tend to run out and buy the, the paper copies. Um, but I do see results with that. And I think it's partly because I can really narrow down my targeting. I can, I, I know my readership is, is women 45 and over. Um, so I can say, I would like to target women that are watching criminal minds that are 45 and over. Um, and you can, you know, zero in on a particular part of the country or something if you want to do that. Um, so I think I'm basically getting the kind of results through Hulu physical ads that I used to get with Facebook when they had the ability to target. But I think because iOS has basically shut them down and they, they, you know, they're blind now, they're just, they're throwing this stuff out there. I don't think they're able to actually zero in on anybody anymore. Um, that's gone. But like with the Hulu stuff, I still see it. Uh, the downside to it is just the, the out of pocket, you know, like every commercial cost me anywhere from two to 5,000 bucks to film. Um, you know, and, and I, I get that back, you know, over, over time, there's you know ways to measure that, but it's just a much bigger spend, you know, versus just jumping on book brush and creating a, you know, graphic and slapping it up there. What's going on with you guys? I got the, something interesting. I think writers might, might find this interesting. Uh, I spent, uh, two and a half hours writing this morning and I produced 117 words <laughs> and, uh, this was uh, a product description and, and I think it just goes to show how important that is and, and how different writing sales copy is than sort of long form narrative. Like it, like it took me a long time. To, it, it took me a few minutes to write 150 words and it took me like the other two hours to get it down to 117 <laughs> good ones. So, you know, just, just throwing it out there, like, you know, it, it's, it's worth it. Um, and I know there are services um, that will, will, will write these for you. And I, and I feel like you really shouldn't need those. <laughs> uh, but if you're willing to put in the time, you can do it. And it just, it just takes some time. I mean, I've always found that to be the, the hardest part. And like, I, I'm working with all these, um, these co-authors right now. And I basically got them creating the, the, you know, the idea for their book, the title and the tagline. Um, but before we actually start on the outline, I'm making them create the back of book copy. Um, and I'm just, I'm shooting it back to them and we're just revamping it and just getting it better and better and better and just tweaking it. And it is crazy difficult to whittle any, it's easier to write the novel than it is to write the back of the book. Yeah. Um, easier to write the back of book than it is to write a one sentence tagline. Um, and for me, titles have always been a, a pain in the ass. Um, you know, it's just because it forces you to have to be clear, concise, and, you know, you know, people's attention spans are extremely short. And that's what ad copy really is. Like, you have to grab them in those first two or three words. Um, you know, that's one of the things I love about working with Patterson because, you know, he was a marketing guy before. Like, he did that for years and years, television, radio, TV, you know, commercials and stuff. Um, and when you talk to him, especially when he's pitching, you know, he's like a little kid, first of all. He loves doing it and just brainstorming ideas. But, like, the ideas that come out of him all sound like that. They sound like one-liners from, you know, for TV spots. Um, and they grab you. You know, like, you're, you're talking – you could give him an idea. He'll twist it around and turn it into something like, holy shit, I want to read that. Um, wait a minute. That was my idea. You know, but, like, he's, he's just – better at it. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a mindset. There's only certain people I think out there that are really good at it. Um, I don't know that's necessarily a skill you can, you can learn. Yeah. It's definitely different than, uh, like you said, I, I think a lot of times writing the novel is easier. Like I love coming up with titles, you know, like I, I feel like that's a skill that I'm, I'm pretty decent at, but, um, but like book descriptions, like that's one thing I miss about co-writing with Jay. <laughs> so I could just be like, here, dude, write the book description now. It's up to you sort of thing. Cause you're good at it. So thank you. Yeah. You know, but, uh, yeah. So I, um, so I finally got, uh, dead wrong done. Uh, the seventh book of my dead South series, it's coming out uh Friday. So I'm excited about that. Um, and now I can just focus on the last book, but I had something funny happen. I wanted to kind of, 
um, it's, it's funny now, but, um, but I thought this could make like a a small conversation see if you guys have any experiences like this. I did something really stupid and it's not the dumbest thing I've done. Um, but that's going to be my question for y'all. You can start thinking about is like, what's like a big mistake you've made when writing or publishing a book. Oh, I thought we were going to say the biggest mistake you've made that's no, i'm about question. to tell you what that is so okay. the the thing i did this week which is not the biggest i'll tell you the biggest after which jay you probably remember this because i've talked about this on podcast before um but i was so i did my final like kindle read of my book and i was going through all my notes i made and i was uh and i was starting to apply them into my word document with the co- like leftover comments i had from my editor and stuff like some big picture stuff And, um, I got like 15 pages from the end of the document and realized I was working on the wrong document the whole time. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) and it was a slightly older draft than, than the one I needed to be working on. I just, I really messed up naming the files, which Jay can tell you, I'm usually really specific about my digital organization. Um, and, and I messed up and luckily it ended up not being too big of a thing to go back and fix. Um, but it definitely was like in the moment I just sat there and shook my head and laughed and I was like, you know, it, I, I don't know. Like, so before I go back to you guys, cause I'm curious, the, the biggest mistake I ever made was I sent my audiobook narrator an old draft of my book, not the published version, and didn't realize it until he had recorded the whole thing. And and he had and I sent him like it was like a it was a it, my editor had worked on it, but it was like not anywhere near the final draft. And I realized after, and he ended up having to record the whole book again. And that was a uh, that, that was, was an expensive that was an expensive mistake for me. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm curious, have you guys ever, are you guys, or am I just the only idiot here? JD's raised his hand, so that makes me happy. I'm not the only moron here. Well, th- th- this is going to really date me, but like, I, I wrote my first book on a, it was a word processor. So this was basically not even a real computer. Like all it did was, you know, you could basically type on it and you could delete and stuff like that. But like it, it was, this was pre windows, like windows didn't exist yet. Um, so then after I, I wrote that, then I, my next one, I actually went out and bought a PC and it was a Hewlett Packard. Um, and I loved it. I got about two thirds of the way through a book. Um, it just figured that I didn't need to back up, you know, cause like I just decided that nothing bad was ever going to happen. Um, and this was back in the day where you actually turned off your computer every day and you turned it back on in the morning when you start working on it, and then you would go get coffee cause it would take like two minutes to boot up. Um, I, I remember flipping the computer on, went to get some coffee, came back and it was just making this very odd clicking noise. Um, which turned out to be a, a bad hard drive. So I, I basically <sighs> I lost about 120 pages or so of the book because I, I had been printing a lot of it up as I as I went, you know, because it's always fun to have that stack of pages next to your desk. Um, but I had slacked off on that too. So yeah, I basically lost 120 pages of it and had to rewrite it. Um, and anybody who's ever had deleted something on accident and had to go back and rewrite it, like you always personally feel that whatever you created the second time around isn't as good as whatever you had before, um, which is most likely probably not true but like, that's the way that it feels. But ever since then, I back up in like a, a million different places. And, and, you know, today's world, we've got Dropbox and other stuff. So it, that's it the really J form. Yeah. So that, that's probably my biggest. What about you, Christine? Um, I've never done anything like that, but I have worked on the, the wrong draft before, but not to the extent that Zach has, but, you know, it, there's a little miracle in word called 
track changes where you can go in and compare documents. So I've had to do that a few times because I've been working on the wrong one and that saved me. Um, but I do have a funny thing that I did that's pretty stupid. So anyone who's had the joy of querying TradPub agents, you know, you always make mistakes. People have had horror stories about wrong names and mismatching fonts. And I'm pretty meticulous about querying, but um, I had checked everything, you know, it was immaculate. I sent it out and you always see it after you send it and spelled my name wrong. So that's probably the <laughs> stupidest thing I ever did. <laughs> oh, nice. You would have lost points on the SAT for that too. <laughs> uh, mine's not not strictly writing related, and I have to be very careful so I don't reveal who and when and what this was. But it's not co-writing with me. That no, be, it's, it's not. You're not going to offend me. I was on a I was on a Zoom call, uh, a, a conference call with a lot of people. This is like like uh, 50 or 60 people, and we were doing presentations. And whenever it was time to present, you had to do a share screen. And uh, I was on a team of, <laughs> you know where this is going. I was on a team of three people. And uh, the one guy and I were really kind of got along. And the other guy, we didn't like all that much. <laughs> and so <laughs> we, we I really a, know where this is going. We had a Google chat going <laughs> during the Zoom meeting. And we were just, I mean, we <laughs> just unloading on this guy and um and yeah and I, I had to and i and i had to share my screen and i did my part and um and i forgot to unshare and so the other guy's talking and i just flip over and and all of a sudden i see on my screen oh my god you're still screen sharing and it was the most like awkward 30 seconds of my life because there's like 50 or 60 people. There's like a pause. And I don't think people saw like they just saw like I was typing something, but it was happening so fast. They couldn't see what it was, but they were probably like, what, what is going on? And I was just like, I wanted to just crawl into a hole and die. It was, it was, it was the worst experience. I'm, I'm cringing now. Just thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, I mean, you guys, you all do those side conversations, right? Imagine that like being public and like, oh, yeah. right. On I'm the having screen. one right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to tell you with who, but with one of the people here, I'm just messing. No, that's hilarious. So I guess me and JD are the only writing idiots here. And JD's happened like in 1975. So, <laughs> you know, well, I actually, I actually used to use one of those word processors like that too. So even though I'm the youngest one here, as we established before the show went on the air. You so, know, honestly, I, I know a couple of people that still use them because there's they're basically distraction-free devices. Yeah, hundred um, percent. Yeah, there's a new one out there, and I forget the name of it, but a couple of writers have, have mentioned it. Um, and you I'm sure about you the can Alpha Smart. It, that might be it. I don't know. It's it's basically it's a word processor that you can buy that like they're still making today. Um, and I, a couple of writers have mentioned it on, on podcasts and other things. That I'm I've, I've pretty heard. sure we had that guy on our podcast. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Like it's it's a. Well, you know, it's a weird thing. Like I unplug, you know, like I just I turn the internet off just because it's the only way I, I can do that. Um, but yeah, sometimes distraction free is good. Yeah. Well, let's take care of some business and then uh, we'll, we'll get into our interview here. I, I, I'm trying to remember how to do all this. It's been so long since I've been here. But uh, if, if you like, really like our new website, uh, make sure you head on over to Word and Pixel at wordandpixel.com because uh, they developed it for us and it's super cool. So check it out. And also our wonderful sponsors over there at Kobo Writing Life. We all know Kobo. If your book is going wide, you got to use them because you set your price, you keep your rights, 
You have monthly promotional op opportunities, and you do all that without exclusivity agreements. So link in the show notes or head directly there by going to KoboWritingLife.com. JD, who are we talking to this week? All right. This week, we've got Jake Bible coming on. He's a Bram Stoker Award winner. Um, uh, he's got, I think he's 65 novels out there. He's been around for a while. His best-selling series is called Zeburbia. It's a zombie apocalypse series. Uh, basically, this guy's a, a fixture in the industry. Um, you see him at a lot of the conferences, hardcore writer, and just, you know, he puts his head to the grindstone and just it gets it done every day. Um, so here he is, Jake Bible. All right. I need to know who reanimated your grandparents' corpses. <laughs> oh that's hilarious um, yeah i um i've always reread my bio on my website and thought man I, I should probably switch that up but there there are parts and that's part of it that i absolutely true story love. right <laughs> yeah true story totally true story i i assume it was probably me when i mistakenly picked up the necronomicon and started reading it instead of you know edgar Allan poe's tales of the horror and macabre you know, I was what eight or nine. So what's a kid gonna do? You can't tell. You just start spitting some old world, you know, old god language, and yeah, you know, then then grandparents die and come back to life. It happens. Yeah, you know? it happens. And you know, it, <laughs> it was happens. it was sort of implied that it was you, but I was like, I really want to know. Like maybe there was someone else involved in that story. <laughs> you got the scoop. You finally, someone finally got it out of me. <laughs> oh, in, in all seriousness, uh, you know. Uh, JD came to me and said, Hey, we got to get Jake Bible on the show. Uh, he's like, he's a, he's a really savvy sort of business guy. He's really, um, smart when it comes to the business of writing. And when JD says that I'm like, okay, <laughs> that's the guy we got to talk to. Uh, so I'm really, uh, excited to kind of dig into a, a few things, uh, about what you're doing, at, not only as yeah. an author, but as a business person, but I thought it, I'd like to have you talk a little bit about Drabble first, because this is a, just a fascinating uh, concept. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, certainly. I mean, a, a Drabble is microfiction. It is a short story that's exactly 100 words. Um, and, I'm, and I mean that, and I, I say this all over my website, but I always have to really explain it. Exactly 100 words, not 101, not 99, right on the dot. And... Um, Way back when I was first starting kind of diving into writing, I, I honestly, I think it was the Drabble cast podcast that um, turned me on to Drabbles. I'm like, cool, this is an interesting way to, you know, start getting some experience, write a bunch of really short stories. What I didn't realize is it's not so much the writing the stories as it is the editing that really becomes the key with the Drabble is because you can crank out 150 words and be like, wow, that's a fun little story. Oh, wait, I now have to cut a third of that to get to that exact 100 words. Um, so it really, it's, it's a beautiful exercise in storytelling, how you get a micro beginning, middle and end, and then in editing, how to actually hone it down and what words to toss. Um, I think Hemingway would have absolutely loved Drabbles because you have to cut the flowers and pretty stuff out, just slice and dice. And I loved it so much, I used it as a writing exercise to start my first novel. And then I realized I actually liked writing in that style and continued. And 132,000 words later, I had a novel finished that was all done in exact 100 word segments. 
um, the chapters were all broken up, which um, takes a little getting used to for some readers. But once you get in the flow of it, uh, it has a very cinematic feel to it. Um, I will never write a novel that way again. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that scratched that question. <laughs> that's that's that one. But I will say that it taught me so much, especially about how to self-edit and cut out all the stuff you don't need. Um, so if anyone really wants to get a, a great, quick, down, dirty education in how to write you know, short fiction and then how to edit, try writing Drabbles. Um, I still do it weekly. I, I put one up every Friday evening, um, send it out through my newsletter. Uh, it's on my uh, website my, and my Substack site. Um, I still keep those, you know, muscles flexed and, and, and keep the, you know, keep those skills honed because, um, I learn something new every, every time I write one, honestly, there's, you know, something because you always get yourself into a little sticky situation and have to edit your way out. And it teaches me a lot. So it's, it's a great exercise. Oh gosh. I have so many questions. I don't even know where to start. Well, <laughs> tell me about how your process for writing Drabble has changed from when you first started to where you are now. I'm, uh, you said it has. So like, is, is your approach different? Is your preparation different? Is your editing different? Um, my editing is different. I think that's, that's probably the most thing. My approach is always the same. I usually, and it's very similar to how I write everything else. I usually have that very first line or that very first scene, that little bit right there in my um, head and it, it, it sparks the rest of the story. Um, I used to try to nail those hundred words right away um, and, you know, just sit there and really think, 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 okay, wait, how can I shorten this before I'm moving on? Now I tend to not worry about hitting it right away. Um, I think that that little unnecessary ego of mine that was trying to do that like it was some game or something. Now I will hit 150, 175 words and then just start editing down. Um, and I think that's just because my editing muscles have gotten a lot stronger over the years. Um, and I'm, I'm more confident in that. And um, I also know when I can, you know, toss some things. And I also know how to, how to really throw an idea away and pivot on it in order to make it work. Um, before I would torture myself and be like, how do I, oh, this is, this is how I want it. Here's the beginning. Here's the middle. Here's the end. Oh, I got to cut all these bits. And now it's like, no, that's, that's not gonna work that way. So turn it, how will this work? Um, so I, I think, yeah, my, my approach now and my style now has become a lot more about the mechanics. Um, because I think my, my storytelling after 10 years of doing it professionally, I've, I've got that down. I've got the characters, I've got the story, I've got the dialogue. Um, it's now so much more about the mechanics for me. Awesome. Do you come to the page with a beginning, a middle and end figured out? Do you discover it as you go? Does it change every story? Uh, I usually, I usually discover it as I go. Um, so yeah, it, it changes each, each time sometimes because maybe I'll have a punchline in my head and it's like, how do I get to that? That's going to be great. You know, how do I get to that little twist? Um, and you know, so, but really the majority of the time, it's like I said, that first line I have, and then I kind of go from there and, and see where it leads me. Um, and like I said, if, if I can't 
get it to work, then I will just chop out an entire you know middle of it and say, okay, that that's not leading me anywhere. That's leading me to a 500 word story, not a 100 word story. <laughs> that 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 makes a lot more questions. There's a lot more going on. We need to cut that part out. So when the reader reads it, they're not going, what? That's it. You don't you don't want them feeling that. So. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely a lot more, a lot more discovery and then going back <laughs> and fixing that. Yeah. And <laughs> which I, is the writer's life. It is. And, and I really yeah. admire the skill you've developed because I, I, I feel like it's way harder to write short fiction than long fiction. Uh, the economy of words, you know, you, you yeah. like you said, you know, you, you can't, you can't have the purple prose and the flowery language. Like you have to get right to it. Yeah, it, it definitely is harder. I think one thing for me that's good is I I just have a hyper creative nature. Um, so I have on like on my iPhone notes, I've got more story ideas than I think I could write, my children could write, my grandchildren could write. I could bequeath to my descendants enough story ideas to get through the next you know millennium. <laughs> So this is, I think, part of, you know, doing the Drabble each week is it, it allows me to just kind of, in a way, exercise that idea that maybe just sort of in the back there going, hey, remember me? And I'm like, yeah, I remember you, but you're not going anywhere. <laughs> and so I can just kind of get those out there. Um, and that's, you know, that's one of the biggest helpful things for, for my brain, definitely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I'm in the middle of an experiment right now in uh, that I, I recently started. Uh, i saw or read a Ray Bradbury uh, talk and it was one of one of the talks where he he said you know uh, a great exercise to really get your feet underneath you as a writer is to write a short story every week for a year yeah. because you're going to write 52 of them at least a couple of them are going to be good <laughs> like statistically you can't yeah. write all all of them poorly right um, yeah. and I love that approach and, and I'm working with some other people on that and one of the common uh, questions that comes back is, wow, I got to come up with an idea every week. And like, that feels daunting, uh, to, to some writers. And then you say you have sort of this, this reservoir of ideas. Yeah. Can you define an idea? Like, is it a, is it a feeling? Is it a situation? Is it a character? Um, it's usually a feeling. Um, I, I will, you know, start off with like, you know, um, you know, just feeling gritty, that day. So it's like, ooh, am I going to go more towards a crime genre theme? Okay, let's let's make this kind of real and and you know, gutsy. And then that brings up the idea, okay, so then what images and what story ideas does that feeling bring? And then usually I can come up with an opening line. Um, a lot lately it's been a line of dialogue. Uh, if you go back through the last you know couple months of my drabbles, I think I've started probably 75% of them have started off with a line of dialogue. Um, and that's usually kind of what pops into my head after that feeling is someone, the, the a character, and I haven't even fleshed out the character, but a character just saying something that kind of starts everything off um, and, and going from there. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's fun that way because it, it, it's also, you know, it's, it, 
it's therapeutic in a way because you know we've got a lot going on in the world so some days i'm just like and i just you know throw it into 100 words and some days i'm happy and jokey and fine and throw that into a you know 100 words um but yeah i I can definitely say for sure starts off with a feeling that that is usually the impetus for it excellent that's that's good to know thanks for sharing that uh, yeah. You mentioned that these are these are going out via Substack, and I, I wanted to ask you about writing in suburbia and your moves to yeah. Substack. And uh, from what I know about Substack, it seems to be a great place uh, where a lot of technical and nonfiction writers are developing an audience. And so I'd love to hear sort of how you're bridging that gap, I guess, between nonfiction and fiction, and and just what your approach is to Substack. Yeah, Substack was is was kind of a nice little surprise. I think what drew it to me um, initially was the fact that it um, it's also a free podcast hosting platform. Um, so I don't have to pay 15, 20, 30 bucks a month for, you know, a podcast host. Um you know, which, you know, when you're a writer, you got to watch those, sure. <laughs> watch every nickel dime penny that you have. And so I was like, okay, this is a good way. I had gotten away from podcasting. Um, I took a you know step back from writing for a bit when I was uh, working full time as a sales manager, um, just, you know, cause life and kids and college expenses, <laughs> all of that yes. stuff. Um, just, you know, wanted to make sure we, we, we had enough, you know, socked away so that things couldn't get drastic. And I'd stepped away and I let my podcast go, um, which was writing in suburbia before and just kind of took a break. And then when I was ready to get back into it, I was like, well, do I want to dive into another podcast host and deal with all of that? And Substack is very stripped down. It is, there are no bells, there are no whistles, um, which for me is kind of a good thing because um, then I can just focus on the content. And um, if I run into an issue of, well, how do I format that? Or how do I do this? It gets a little creative, um, which is kind of fun (laughs) in a way. But um, the podcast hosting for Substack drew me there. And then I realized I could use it uh, for my newsletter too, that that's really, it's, it's like a blog platform, newsletter, podcast hybrid thing. Um, which was really what I was looking for. <laughs> so I was able to um, import all my contacts from my old MailChimp um, account that I had and kind of start off on with a semi-good foundation and just launch from there. And it's it's been great. Um, you know, I'm building my, my subscriber list. Um, people seem to be happy. You can do paid subscriptions on it, which was another thing that was good. Um, having, you know, a podcast before and just writing blog posts on my website. I mean, you couldn't monetize anything. And I'm all about, I came from the free model um, over a decade ago. That's how I launched my career, giving away my first novel for free as a podcast. So I'm all about free, but at the same time, I need to make a living. And um, people have been asking me over the years, can we donate? Can we give you this? Can you do that? So Substack kind of gave me a platform to give stuff away for free, to write stories, to write blog posts, to send it out to my mailing list, to have a podcast, and then also offer a tier of paid subscriptions for those who just wanted to throw a little coin my way because they appreciate all the free over the years. And um, so there's there's some bonus things for them, a few things. I don't go crazy with the subscribers just because uh, I don't want it to become lopsided and become too 
transactional, if you will. Um, so that it's like, you know, you're a paid subscriber. So now you get all of this and blah, 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 blah. They, they get the extras and they get a few extra things, but it really is, I think more about, um, uh, some core fans who just appreciate what I'm able to put out there and, um, want to help me keep putting it out there. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any way of knowing where new traffic is coming from or new subscribers? And I guess what I'm trying to figure out is, is it your platform that's driving them to Substack or are there people on Substack who are finding Jake Bible? Um, I don't think there's people on Substack finding me um, that much. It's, um, you know, it's still a fairly new platform. Um, a lot of people are, you know, jumping on it, um, which I think, you know, now it's, it's really become a lot bigger just in the past few months. Um, so it's getting crowded in there. Um, also, you know, Substack is, is there to make money. So they definitely tend to promote their higher paid <laughs> um, blogs and, you know, Substack uh, writers that, that are there that have, you know, thousands and thousands of paid subscribers. Um, you know, they want to boost that a little more. And, you know, of course, why wouldn't they? <laughs> that's what they're there for. Um, I just appreciate they offer so much that's free that I can, you know, do without having to worry about going into the red during that month of, you know, expenses and whatnot, who knows. But um, it's, uh, it's, I'd say probably the majority of my subscribers that I bring there, I bring through just posting about stuff, posting, um, on social media, you know, sharing the links to my Substack um, podcasts. I know you can see, um, analytics in Substack. They're stripped down and, you know, minimal, but you get, you get the gist of what's going on. Um, I can see kind of where they're coming from. I can see demographics. I can see, you know, just the data. You kind of need to get an idea of what, whether something's working or not working. I'd say the number one thing that's driving the most people is um, I have a book magnet of my first novel, Dead Mech, uh, that I've been sharing with a lot of other newsletters. Um, I think newsletter swaps are really the best way, um, the easiest and you know way to get a kind of new subscriber payoff. So in order to get the free ebook, they have to put in their email address. Um, so, you know, I'll get a dozen, I'll get 20, I'll get 50, sometimes a hundred new subscribers, uh, just by swapping with other, other authors and, ex you know, being exposed to their audience. That seems to be the best way. Now, of course, when the next newsletter comes out, I get a string of unsubscribes. That's what happened. Of course. <laughs> they got their free book. They're totally happy with that. And then they get an email and go, ah, you know, but it's no different than any other platform I've been on. Uh, the retention rate is, is actually been higher on Substack uh, than it was when I was just using like MailChimp or something like that. Um, I would get way more uh, unsubscribed notices uh, from MailChimp when I would send out and less uh, engagement. Um, Substack has, I would say, limited the amount of people who unsubscribe. I think just because people get an email, they go and they go, oh, there's a lot more going on here than just that free ebook I signed up for. So they stick around for a little bit. Um, and then also engagement seems to be higher. I'm, I'm running at about a good 25 to 30% open rate um, and a good 15 to 20% of that you know, click rate. Um, and you see all those numbers on there, which is awesome. Um, and with MailChimp, it was considerably less, you know, I had maybe a 10% open 
open rate and maybe a one to 2% click rate. Uh, so this is about 10 times kind of what I was looking at before, um, which is awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. Those are good. Yeah. Those are solid numbers. Yeah, definitely. You know, it's, it's enough. I've been very happy with it. Now I know it's just a matter of me putting in the legwork and just building it and building it and building it. I know, I know the platform itself isn't holding me back. So now it's just a matter of putting in the work. <laughs> yeah. It always comes down to that, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. <laughs> <laughs> Had you looked at anything like Patreon before you went to Substack? I did. I have looked at Patreon. Um, and I even many years ago, I think signed up for Patreon and, and started thinking about how I was going to make it work. And one thing about it was it was, it, it looked like it was going to be way more work to keep the Patreon. I was going to end up working for my Patreon <laughs> account as opposed to having it work for me. Uh, that's a good um, distinction. Which, yeah. And that's, that's what I, you know, a lot of writers, um, fellow authors I know have found themselves in that same boat, but they're kind of okay with it. Or they've gotten to a point where it's like, well, I don't dare turn my Patreon off. <laughs> it's got, you know, it's got a good income going, but I think one thing that, you know, drew me to Substack is it was, I could just monetize what I was just already naturally doing what I wanted to do. Um, and also put it out there in a way that, hey, understand that the paid subscription, you're going to get some access to extras, you're going to get access to things that other people won't, you're going to get first looks, um, I'm going to send everybody who does paid subscriptions, you know, a free copy arc of, you know, whatever next ebook I release, they get it well before everybody else, um, or at least they get it free um, when everybody else has to buy it off of one of the retailers. Um, you know, and so it was just kind of easy. Just it's easy for me to keep that going because it's just what I'm doing anyway. Um, Patreon was going to break my brain. I could see that <laughs> instantly. Like I said, I was going to end up working for it instead of working for it working for me. Um, so that's, yeah, again, one reason I went with Substack. Yeah. Do you have any sort of ballpark percentages on uh, Substack free followers versus the people who have opted to, to pay you? Oh yeah. Um, let's see here. I've got, 20. so I have a close to 2000, um, subscribers right now that are just free subscribers. And then I have about 20, um, paid subscribers. Okay. Um, and I really only launched this back in October, September. I think September is when I launched <laughs> October is when I actually really started putting content up. And then through November and December, I've been really consistent in everything. So like I said, it's still building, but I mean, you know, you're looking at, you know, it's about a 1% right now for, you know, just launching it right off. That's, that's not bad. Um, you know, and it's it's funny because I mean I recognize the emails, I know the names, and these are definitely people who have been long term fans um, and supporters for a while. So uh, it feels good not to get the money, but it feels good to know that you know I can throw them some extra stuff, and um, you know we have little extra discussions threads that are just subscriber only, so we can have our little own little chats and things, and um, that's that's been kind of fun. It feels more intimate than say Patreon. Um, and, um, I think it will continue kind of that way, even if the numbers grow, if I get to 20,000 and 200 paid subscribers, um, it's, it's kind of that platform 
it gives it, yeah, it's, it's a lot more, uh, instant connection in a way. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Uh, you, you mentioned having, you know, uh, these other things that, that you have to, to work on and, and, and managing this. So when do you find the time to write? Uh, do you, do you schedule your writing time? Do you fit it in when you can? How, how's that look in your life? Um, I just finished, uh, a novel, um, a couple weeks ago and got that sent off. And really I tend to focus on first thing in the morning, do a couple administrative things, you know, emails, you know, double check the Substack, do whatever I need to do on there, uh, check sales rankings, things like that. But I try to limit that to not much more than an hour if I can. Um, and then I'll dive right into writing um, and usually write. Luckily for me, um, I'm fast and prolific. Um, so I can crank out a couple thousand words in a couple hours. Um, and usually by that time, I mean, it's just like any other writer, I mean, after 2000 words, it doesn't matter that I wrote it in two hours, as opposed to somebody writing it in two days, the brain is done. Yeah. <laughs> There's only so many words in the head that you can get out right away. Uh, I just happen to be able to get it out quickly, yes. <laughs> but then I have the rest of the day to do other things. Um, so I would say usually it's the first thing in the morning, quick administrative stuff. Then I write and then after lunch, it's all the other stuff I have to do, <laughs> which is a lot. So, yeah. 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 Well, good. I, I, I love yeah. that insight. And it, it seems to be fairly consistent that um, a, a, lot, a lot of writers that we talk to like to like to write early in the morning if they can. Because mm -hmm. I, I think yeah, you're yeah, right. Your brain is yeah, you're, you're fresher. Yeah. Um, I've the people who can write late at night after a full day's work and with the family and all of that more power to them. Yeah. I mean, you know, you, you have to find the time when you can find the time. There's always that. Um, but my brain is mush yes. <laughs> by, by the evening time. And I've never been a get up at four in the morning writer. Um, that doesn't work for me because that takes an hour and a half for my brain to wake <laughs> up. I'm like, why did I even get up? I could just have slept another hour and a half. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's, it's just, you're fresher, you're stronger first thing in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> well, cool. I got one, one more fun question for you. And, uh, yeah. this is, this is one, you know, we'll just kind of have fun with it. Totally open-ended. Uh, you've been doing this for a while now and, and we're certainly yeah. in a, in a time period where we're seeing a lot of changes, not only in the world, but in the publishing industry. So where do you think the publishing industry is headed? What, what's, uh, what's coming down the pike in the next, uh, five or 10 years? <sighs> In the next five or 10 years, 10 years, no way I could even guess. Yeah, <laughs> yeah 10 is probably a bit of a stretch. <laughs> um, five years, although I've been doing it for 10 years. And even though that seems like a long time, there's, you know, publishing moves at a glacial pace, except when it doesn't. Um, right now, we seem to be at a point where oh, there's a lot of consolidation um, of media companies. Um, that's been a trend for a while now. And as you know, big five turns into big four, which will probably turn into big three uh, within the next you know three years or so. Um, I think what's going to happen naturally is we're going to see a lot more smaller presses um, being able to kind of rise up in the ranks. Um, because when you consolidate the way publishing is now with the big publishing houses, they are going to ignore 
a lot of demographics <laughs> that have been traditionally ignored. Right now, there's there's a big push for um, writers of color, um, for you know LGBTQ plus uh, writers too. Um, but we all, if we, for those of us who've been in publishing for a while, we know that's a trend um, and a uh, fad that publishing is following. Um, and I don't mean that in a negative way towards the writers. I mean that in a negative way towards the publishing industry, how um, they grab onto something, same as TV, same as film and all of that, uh, write it for as long as they can and then ditch it as soon as it's no longer profitable. Um, we're going to see smaller presses being able to be more sustainable um, with different writers, different points of view, different voices, different genres, stranger things, all the stuff that the big guys are going to ignore and toss to the side. Um, at least that's my hope <laughs> that uh, some of these smaller presses will be able to strengthen themselves with some quality, quality work that's just being ignored. Um, over the past 10 years, I've watched uh, indie authors go from being just called self-publishing, you know, self-publishers to being legitimate indie publishers. Um, there are a ton. And in a way, it's, you know, because I tend to write in military sci-fi or sci-fi or horror genres like that. Um, it's, it's, it's been detrimental to my career a little because all of a sudden the market becomes really packed. But at the same time, it's good to see there's so much quality out there now just being put out by authors on, you know, by themselves, um, that they're taking, um, you know, taking the initiative to take control of their own work and their own words and everything. And they're not cutting corners. In the beginning, it was a lot of corner cutting, get it out as fast as possible, gold rush, gold rush, gold rush. Now it's way more legitimate publishing work and people are putting in the time, putting in the effort, doing what they have to so that you can't tell the difference between an indie published title and a major house traditional published title. Um, you would just have to look at the copyright page to know. <laughs> um, so I, I think that's gonna strengthen. I think the indie um, publishing side is gonna strengthen. Um, but again, this, you know, we, <laughs> You know, as we've seen over the past year or so, you have no idea what's coming around the corner, <laughs> what's going to change, who knows if, you know, things get, you know, big entities get broken up, what that could do to the market, who knows, there's a lot of uncertainty, but um, for me, I'm putting my money on the smaller guys, at least getting a good strength and boost and foundation for a little while <laughs> until big publishing really takes notice and gets worried and starts trying to do whatever they do as it's happened over decades and decades as we've watched the cycles repeat. <laughs> Christine, I want to start with you. Uh, great conversation with Jake. A lot of interesting, innovative ideas coming out of this, especially around shorter fiction. And, and that's why I want to start with you. So uh, anything he talked about, especially like around Substack or serialized fiction, kind of catch your ear? Yeah, you know, of course, I've done serialized fiction, but I've never used Substack. I did. I do have a Patreon, but it's sadly <laughs> neglected. Um, but yeah, so I thought that was interesting. I do try and do a couple things with those, but I'm not very good at, at keeping up with it. But I did like his Drabble idea. Um, I know there was a magazine, I think it's called The Drabbler, that is just full of those 100-word stories. And I thought, what a great way to uh, exercise the problem of having too many ideas, right? Because that's, that's a problem I have, too. I'm like, that's great. You should do that. Just get them out of there. And then maybe something sticks, you know, and you use that later. 
Yeah, I'm a little disappointed that Jake's or Jake Jay's book description is 117 words. I think you need to get that down to 100. Yeah, that'd be ideal. <laughs> Make that a drabble. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was really interesting too. Like, just even as just an exercise, um, you know, I, I could see how uh, again, like Jake said. Um, and by the way, Jake has like been all over my also bots for years, so it was kind of cool to have him on the podcast. Um, but. Uh, but yeah, like uh, it just even an editing and or an exercise in editing is super interesting, just because you know you again you have to get it to exactly a hundred words and use that real estate uh, very very carefully. I thought that was pretty fascinating. I, I was honestly sitting there going, "Well, where do you sell these?" You know, because like, <laughs> I, I guess that's where my head just goes on on everything. Like if I'm going to spend the time writing something, I want it to be a product that I can actually yeah. you know monetize at at some point. I mean, I, I get the the you know, why somebody would do it. And, you know, as, as a teacher, like I would, you know, this is an exercise I would definitely give students, um, because it forces them to have to be clear and concise in, in their thoughts. I mean, especially when you're down to exactly 100 words, I mean, that, that sounds crazy difficult to do to, you know, to land on that, that spot every single time. Um, I, I'm terrible when it comes to short stories. I've tried it. I've got a couple that I've written, but for the most part, every time I try to write a short story, it just either grows into a novel or I, I lose interest in it. <laughs> It's funny how that is. Like, I think we've had that conversation on the podcast before, but uh, like there's some writers that are just, uh, that I like that I love their short stories, but don't, I can't stand their novels, you know, and it, it, vice versa. And, and it's, you should call uh, them out all of them right now. I'm not going to, and can't stand is a little strong. I shouldn't say that. I should say like, don't like as much. Um, cause it's, it, that's actually more of the truth anyway. Uh, not that I'm going to say any names, but, um, but yeah, it's, but it's just interesting how that works out, how, how some people are better at like just getting to the point and being really concise and how some people are, are better at like letting a story breathe over, you know, 300 pages or whatever. And it's, it's, it's really, it's really interesting. Um, I, I'm honestly trying to figure out what Substack is. Like I I've heard of it, but I've never actually tried it. Like, do you guys use this? I've, I've used it, but not the, not the, for paid, it, it's just it's basically like a um, a, a scaled down. Well, I guess it's an email newsletter service and a podcasting uh, uh, distributor. Um, but you can so you can have free you can have free uh, subscribers, but you can also uh, charge them as well. And I think that's to answer your question on all seriousness, JD. I think that's where the uh, Jake was going with the Drabbles is he was using them uh, for Patreon and for Substack, and so. Uh, he was monetizing them in, in that way. He wasn't necessarily selling them directly. Gotcha. He brought up a really good point about Patreon too, where he said yeah. uh, the whole thing about like, it, what, what, how do you say it? Like you want to, you don't want to work for Patreon. You want Patreon to work for you. And I, I tell that to like, when I talk to authors who are thinking about doing Patreon, especially if they don't have a following already, I'm like, well, you know, um, you really want to think about that because Patreon is not a discoverability platform. Like you have to bring the audience there. So especially if you don't have an audience, like you're going to have to fulfill stuff for like, if, if you, even if you get like two or three people on there who are paying you five bucks a month, like you're still going to have to deliver content for those people. And that kind of goes back to what JD said, where like you could be spending that time working on something that you could have a better chance of selling, um, you know, and, and I, so I think like when people are thinking about that, think about how you want to do it. Um, like the people I know who are doing Patreon as authors who are doing really well, they have audiences and a lot of them are not, 
some I shouldn't say everybody, but like very very few are like creating original content just for that. Um, a lot of them are using it. Like I'm thinking about Lindsay Broker, um, who already has a great audience, but like she does it in a way where she is delivering. It's a way for those people to get all her books early that are coming out. Um, and it's pretty genius too, because I think she goes through KU on a lot of her books. So it's also a way for people who don't read on Kindle to still be able to read her books before they go exclusive sort of thing. I could be wrong about that part of it, but, um, but I, I, I don't know. I just think people, they think, Oh, that's really cool. Like people might pay to support me or whatever, but don't really think through like what that's going to look like six months from now, if you don't have a lot of people on there and you're still having to create content for it. Yeah. It's funny. You, you and I, cause we've had a Patreon experience and it wasn't bad, but we've had that where we felt like we were working for Patreon instead of the other way around. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and I think, too, what's what's interesting, and, and this is good for, for people to think about, I think that's the same thing for content marketing. Like, y- whether it's Patreon or a YouTube channel or TikTok or a podcast or a blog, like, you have to show up every week. And, and most of the times, you're showing up with no audience at first. Like, if you start a podcast or you start a blog, there's nobody out there listening to it. And you have to have the discipline and the organization to show up and perform ev- like every week or every whatever the interval is. And that's not easy to do. I mean, it's not even easy to do once you have an audience. And I think that's why you see, you know, people will fall off of blogging or they'll stop podcasting because if you're just like every week indefinitely, that's just a, it's just a real challenge. I mean, if you're talking about seasons or you're doing like, you know, segments and then you're taking time off, that's different. But just just to kind of like show up indefinitely every single week, week in and week out, is not easy to do. Yeah, I, I've <clears throat> I've been thinking about this a lot lately because there's like a uh, what do you, I guess you could call it like a venture. I guess that's the word I use that like I've been thinking about going into that's not related to writing, but like is online sort of thing. And but it's just it's exactly what you just said is stuff I've been thinking about. Like, do I want to commit the time? to try to build something else, especially when I'm not even where I want to be with my books and I could be working on that. And this is something I would also have to do like more in my free time, I guess, which I, you know, as a single dad and stuff, I don't have a ton of that. So, um, you know, it's, I, I've been thinking about all the stuff you've been talking about where it's like, man, do I really want to build something from scratch at this point? And it, probably something I want to put off till later so I can just keep building this thing I'm already working on. Yeah, you know, honestly, I think at any we're self-employed, right? So you've you've got to sit back at some point. You know, I think a lot of people do this, or companies do this on an annual basis. But just take stock in everything that you're doing, and decide, you know, it, is this worthwhile? Is this giving me a return, or is it not? Um, and you know, to just clip some stuff from the, the business model. You know, like you, you can't be afraid to do that. I, I got approached by a company that makes classic books. Um, you know, the, and these are titles that are basically in public domain. So what they do is they grab that title, they they box it. You know, they create a nice cover for it. Um, and it's a subscription service. So if you want to create a classic library, you can subscribe. And then once a month, they send you a book. Um, they wanted me to write an introduction to, to every one of those, um, which, you know, at first I thought was cool because I've read tons of classic books. I could do that. Um, but then I started realizing I have to read a lot of the classic books that I haven't read in, in order to create that summary for the beginning. And like, do I really want to get into that? You know, and it, it's a percentage, you know, of, of the income, like I would make something off of this, but like, I just don't know that 
it's worth the time. So yeah, I think in general, just evaluate your entire business model, look at every little piece of it, you know, chop off the stuff that's not working um, to free up that time and put it into something else. You, you can't be afraid to try new stuff, but you do need to be ready to, to, to pull the plug on it when it doesn't work. Yeah, I was just going to say that's kind of what happened with me for uh, the Patreon was I was looking at what return am I getting on my investment? It was there. I was a couple other platforms and all my audience was on Vela. So I'm like, well, why am I going to do all these other things when people are coming here? So that's exactly because I only have so much time. I can't post to every platform in the world that would take me all day. So I just did the one platform because that's where the audience is. Right. So, yeah, 100 percent agree. Yeah, even I mean, even if it's not business related, like I've had an uh we call them ventures since Zach used that word. Like, you know, I, I've, I've started things that are pure passion projects and, and I don't intend to monetize. I'm doing them in my spare time because I like it. It's a hobby. And even that, like, even in that scenario, you love it, but like, can you show up week in and week out and do it every week forever? <laughs> like you, it's just, it's a mindset thing. And, and it's uh, it, like, I really admire one of the reasons I really admire Joanna is, is, that the creative pen has been going on for so long and it's basically her. And like just to show up week in and week out for years or decades is just crazy. I mean, there's this guy, Jonathan Mann. Um, he writes a song a day. He just passed his 5,000th song every day for 5,000 days. This guy has written, recorded and posted a song on social media. That's just, it's just mind boggling to me. Like I, I just think that's like, that's the level of commitment you need. Um, you know, otherwise it's just not going to work for you. Well, cool. That was great having Jake on. Uh, really interesting to hear uh, all the cool stuff he's, he's doing. So uh, definitely go check it out, especially if you're uh, looking to do some short form stuff. JD, who do we got on the show next week? Next week, we've got Paul Tremblay coming back. He's the award-winning author of, of multiple books. Uh, my personal favorite is called A Head Full of Ghosts. Uh, his latest novel is called The Pallbearers Club, and it released earlier this year, so he's going to tell us all about it. Excellent. That will definitely be fun. If you'd like to be notified as soon as new episodes publish, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and sign up now. We'll see you next episode, and have a great week of writing. Authors, want to get paid to do what you love? Enroll at Ghostwriting University, the only all-in-one online course taught by one of the world's best co-writers, Alex Cody Foster. Learn how to conduct fascinating interviews, craft a compelling book proposal, find your white whale, and build a dazzling portfolio that attracts highly lucrative deals. If you can write, GU can teach you how to launch a successful ghostwriting business. Join now. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers, Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.